Splendid Table is brought to you by all the chickens at Locally Laid Egg Company. Producing high-quality, delicious eggs for over a decade, Locally Laid prioritizes good lives for their hens. Locally Laid Egg Company also partners with rural farmers to keep agriculture clucking along in Minnesota. Locally sourced, locally sold, that's Locally Laid. You can learn more about visiting the flock at the farm's Airbnb at LocallyLaid.com. Hey, it's Francis. You know, sometimes I see all these cookbooks about how to veganize or vegetarianize Asian cuisines. And, you know, I always think it's a little funny because there are long, like, thousand-year-old traditions of delicious plant-based cooking in China, Korea, Japan, all over the continent. This episode from last year features two amazing chefs who've dug into it in their own way. Check it out. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. So my mom hasn't eaten meat for 35 years, and... One of the funny things about that to me is that I think she still kind of misses it. Like to this day, she says the scent of a searing burger smells delicious. But she stopped eating meat because of her faith and because of family. She's a Taoist, and her temple taught her that a personal sacrifice could help the health of my grandparents, her in-laws. My grandmother was sick at the time. So she vowed to become a vegetarian. And in her religious tradition, that also means avoiding onions, garlic, scallions, shallots, anything like that. Now, I get it. You hear that and you think my mom's whole eating life is one big no-fun zone. But I should also tell you that I have had so many super delicious meals eating her food. Because her vegetarianism came from her temple, and Buddhist and Taoist temples in China have created an incredibly deep cuisine over thousands of years. Now, I've always wanted to learn more about that, but I'd only ever found one cookbook on the subject in English, which is almost 30 years old. It's great. It's by Eileen Yinfei Lo. It's called From the Earth. But imagine how thrilled I was when one day at work, I opened up an email and it was from a literary agent pitching a cookbook by a young, talented Chinese-American vegan blogger who wanted to explore traditional Chinese plant-based cooking. So I signed the book up right away. And then author Hannah Che took it so seriously, she moved to China and graduated from the only plant-based professional culinary school in the entire country. Now, because she's vegan, she obviously doesn't eat eggs, but because she's not Buddhist or Taoist, she does use onions and garlic. And in her work, she's learned not only about the old traditions of Chinese plant-based eating, but also about an exciting modern-day scene there as well. I'm so happy to get to talk with her today. Hey, Hannah, it's so great to see you. So great to talk to you again. Thanks for having me. Oh my God, it's such a pleasure. It was, it was such a pleasure working on your book. And, you know, I've told you this a million times before, that, you know, I grew up with my mom as a, she wasn't vegan, but she was a, a Chinese vegetarian. And, um, you know, it's funny, I, re- I remember the day she came home, actually, and told us that, I was like nine or 10, she came home and she told us that she was going to stop eating meat. And... I actually sort of remember feeling worried almost like, like oh, mommy is different now. Like something's wrong. Is everything okay <laughs> with mommy? Like there was this, this definite feeling like, Oh, just because she had told us she was going to stop eating meat. And you know, when I was working with you, when I read the story that you wrote, 
you kind of had a parallel experience from the other perspective, right? Which is that you had committed to veganism while you were outside the home when you were in college and you came home to your family. And then you had sort of like the flip side reaction. Tell us about that story about when you came home. Yeah, so I made the decision to go vegan when I was in college. Um, I was a sophomore in college. I came home for a winter break and actually the conversations with my mom about food had always been centered around kind of like what we are cooking at the mm-hmm. moment. I would ask her like, oh, what are we making for dinner? And we never really talked about food on like a broader sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really stop to think either about like, oh, what are my family traditions when it comes to what we eat? But I think that winter was when I really started to realize that a lot of the foods that my mom cooked for us were actually already vegetarian mm-hmm. and actually vegan because we didn't really eat dairy products. So on a day-to-day, like the foods that we're eating, she would make rice, she would make um, stir-fried vegetables. But then when it came to the holidays, I think that was when I really felt that tension between, oh, we are celebrating and my dad in particular loves making dumplings and mm-hmm. Um, we always would use pork in the fillings, whether it was dumplings or he would make like this flatbread with pork filling. And it was then that I realized like, oh, do I, how can I still participate in this? And is it still possible to, if Mm -hmm. I am not eating meat anymore? And I think the way my parents reacted to it initially was kind of out of concern because they didn't know like, oh, can you get enough nutrients from like a plant-based diet (laughs) Um, so they're concerned about that always still parents yeah (laughs) but then also they were just like oh i guess like we're making dumplings so what are you going to eat like you can help us make them but then there's like at that point i hadn't really started cooking for myself so now i would just be like oh let's i can make like this vegetarian filling and we can still all make dumplings together but Mm -hmm. at that point it was much like oh either you aren't participating um or you are, and there's really no in-between there. And I think... Yeah. It was like separating you from your family and your culture, right? Mm-hmm. And it was even more obvious when I visited, when I went back to China to visit relatives with my whole family, um, because all of the meals are family style. Like you sit around a table, you order a huge spread, and the relatives always want to order fish and seafood and all these expensive uh, dishes just because they want to treat you. Um, mm-hmm. You haven't seen like our family in years and years, so this is like even more apparent now, like if you're not participating, you're still sitting at Mm -hmm. the table, but Mm -hmm, yeah. mm -hmm. So then how'd you get into looking into sort of the Chinese traditions of plant-based eating? I made that discovery when I was on another trip to China. This was after I graduated um, from my master's program. I was with my brothers. It was the first time we were in China, just the three of us, like without our parents. And we kind of had the freedom to explore and go places that we totally wouldn't do with our parents. But we went to several, we went to so many um, restaurants because at that time I was um, thinking about actually like writing the book and the the concept behind vegetarianism in China. And I specifically went to all these vegetarian, I sought out like vegetarian restaurants in China. Mm-hmm. And then I discovered that there were so many, like I would be on the Dianping, I think that's like the version of Yelp there. I'd be on the app scrolling and be like, 
there are literally hundreds of vegan and vegetarian restaurants, some of them very traditional, some of them just recently opened, very modern, contemporary um, takes on vegetarian and vegan food just in this one city. And so I would Mm -hmm. pick a few and go out to eat with my brothers. And at the temples, you had the very traditional kind of, um, there's both like a downstairs and upstairs restaurant. Like downstairs would be what the monks would be eating themselves. And so they would open it up like buffet style for people to come. And I noticed a lot of the people who would go to these lunches were kind of more elderly. And they were basically Mm. like the Buddhist population, the Buddhist community in that particular city. And I would just watch them be like, oh, wow, they're... (laughs) There's such a community here of people who are eating vegan. It was actually mostly vegan foods, um, just on like on a regular basis. And then you would go upstairs mm, and they would have this beautiful restaurant. And it was more for, I think traditionally, historically, it's been for like benefactors. They would create more elaborate oh, meals. Um, and temple cooking is so refined. It actually... It very, it very much felt like sitting down for like a fine dining meal, the way they present the food and the different ingredients that they use, kind of the more medicinal, expensive, like mushrooms. And so I got a chance to visit both of these types of restaurants. And then you would go to like a shopping mall and there would be like a recently opened vegan restaurant, more catered towards um, younger audiences, younger eaters. And they really incorporated the ethos of... Um, Western um, veganism, like environmentalism and how um, eating a plant-based diet is better for your health and it's better for um, the environment. And so all of these different kind of like traditions that I was seeing really motivated me to go back. And that was why I decided to go to culinary school because Mm -hmm. I felt like to learn about this cuisine, I really had to be there. And I really had to talk to these chefs. I really had to learn from these old Buddhist monks and um, just really immerse myself in that history and that philosophy. Yeah. So actually, take a step back because you, you've mentioned the, the Buddhist temples a couple of times. What is the relationship between Buddhism and Chinese vegetarian or Chinese vegan cooking? So the roots of the cuisine are found in Taoism and also like the teachings of Confucius and Mencius. And so these were early on, early on, you can see these um, origins of eating like a mostly plant-based diet and it's chewing mm. like animal products. But then around 200 AD, that's when Buddhism entered the country. And I think the Chinese interpretation of the teachings were that you cannot kill animals or harm life um, mm-hmm. or take away life um, for no reason. Or it's like if something has been killed already, like I think monks used to like beg for alms, you can partake of the food, but like intentionally you shouldn't be, um, you don't want to be complicit in the harming of animals. And so that's how they interpreted the teachings. I know some other like um, countries or cultures didn't have that same um, emphasis on vegetarianism, but then this Mm -hmm. was how the cuisine developed over time. And it mostly took place in temples and palaces. And the food that would be served, especially in palaces, was very elaborate because in this religion, like in these traditions, you would be vegetarian on like the first and 15th of every month and for Mm -hmm. holidays on like the first of every Lunar New Year. And so the food that was prepared 
was very much banquet style. And that's where the tradition of mock meats came about. You would have duck and goose and um, like these pork dishes and meatballs and all of these very... Um, that had like symbolic purpose in in like in the larger culture, right? Yes, exactly. They all represented um, certain uh, things, whether it was like for good luck or for prosperity in the new year. And so that's where the cuisine really developed was in these palaces. And then later on in the Song Dynasty, as this kind of palace cooking and temple cooking switched over to um, commercial venues. So you would have restaurants springing up and many of these restaurants actually were modeled after these Buddhist temple restaurants. Like they weren't really restaurants back then. It was just a place for people to gather and um, partake of a meal when they were visiting a temple. And so I think nowadays this cuisine has really moved from the realm of temples and palaces, obviously, (laughs) into businesses and restaurants. And Mm -hmm. at the same time, there's also been like a third category. I I like to call it popular vegetarianism, which is like Mm. not, which is not um, strictly vegetarian, but popular vegetarianism is just the plant-based dishes and the home cooking that's happening in the kitchens of just ordinary Chinese families. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that was what a lot of the recipes in my book were inspired by, just very simple, um, very delicious, but kind of like or everyday dishes that you can make with vegetables using Chinese seasonings and aromatics and cooking techniques. And this is more yeah. of like the type of food that my mom would cook for us when I was growing up. Yeah. So in a funny way, you kind of like went back full circle, right? It was like you felt separated from your family and then you like did all this intensive training and study and then you kind of came back to the food like, oh yeah, this is actually <laughs> basically what my mom was cooking for me in the first place. Exactly. <laughs> Hannah Che is the author of The Vegan Chinese Kitchen. We'll have more with her in a moment. And then Chef Danny Bowen joins us with his new book, Mission Vegan. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking with Hannah Che, author of The Vegan Chinese Kitchen, about her travels to find the ancient and contemporary stories of Chinese plant-based eating. Let's get back to it with her. So let's get to some of the, um, the dishes in the book, like I I know the worst question in the world, having both worked on cookbooks and talked to many people who have written cookbooks, the worst question in the world is like, oh, what's your favorite recipe in the book? It's like, it's it's awful. But let's play a different game. Let's imagine that you had every ingredient in the book in your kitchen right now. What would you go and make today? Okay, since it's kind of entering the fall season right now, and also mm. today I... Feeling particular, I'm not feeling particularly ambitious. I think I just want something simple <laughs> for dinner. I would go for two recipes. So one of them okay. is in the beans, fruits, and gourds chapter. This is the braised winter squash with fermented black beans. Mm. And the reason I love this recipe so much is because it takes something that I previously not really cooked with, and that would be fermented black beans. They're just these um, very umami-packed, kind of salty, dried, essentially preserved soybeans that have turned black in the process of the fermentation. But mm-hmm. they're so 
um, they're so savory. Yeah. And this recipe utilizes that savoriness and kind of pairs it with the starchy sweetness of a winter squash, whether that's kabocha or red curry or butternut or whatever you have mm-hmm. on hand. But you just take the kabocha squash, the winter squash, you cut it into chunks, you kind of stir fry the aromatics beforehand. So I think I use scallions in there, a little bit of garlic, and then you add the fermented black beans. And you stir them around until they get a little bit frizzled and you can smell them. They smell really delicious. Mm -hmm. And then you add in the kabocha squash, you add in the broth, um, and you just let it simmer down until you're essentially braising it. Um, The Chinese word is like min. It's like kind of a smother braise. And Mm -hmm. it's actually quite a, like, it only takes about like 10 minutes, I think, 10 to 15 minutes. But then you get this really delicious dish that basically like didn't take much except for the prep work and you can eat it with rice it's so good on rice and it has like a both a sweetness and savoriness to it and it's very hearty like it's a very it's a nice fall kind of winter dish and then the other recipe i would make would be my favorite tofu recipe in this book it's also the simplest because i (laughs) admit i'm kind of a lazy cook sometimes (laughs) but this recipe takes tofu and you basically blanch it or poach it and cut it into cubes and then you stir it with a mixture of um, herbs so i like to use basil and Hmm. sesame oil and then just like a little bit of salt and also add some msg in there but you stir this all up. It's kind of like a very fragrant pesto. And yeah. the tofu is simmered in salted water. So that's the key here. Like you infuse the tofu with seasoning already um, because of the salted water. And mm-hmm. then you stir in this pesto and you can eat it like at room temp or chill it. But I think I love this recipe because it really highlights like what tofu can be. Like tofu doesn't need to be baked and pressed and like manipulated to be more chewy and more like meat because i think yeah, the beauty sure, of tofu right. is like how tender it is and yeah, yeah 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 just how like how delicious it can be just with very very simple seasonings and mostly aromatics i think tofu is the most delicious when you pair it with something very fragrant like in this case the herbs and then the sesame oil yeah oh god i love that when you say um to highlight the tenderness if you're in the store and you're buying tofu you know the kind of tofu that's like um, sold by firmness so it would be extra firm firm medium soft silken what kind of tofu would you use for this so i would go for a medium or a medium firm i think medium or medium firm is the most versatile because it's still quite tender but you can also pan fry it so that it develops a crust there's a recipe in the book that um, shows you how to pan fry tofu without having to press it so you both preserve the custardy tenderness in the center, and then you have this nice crispy crust on the outside. And then mm-hmm. in the case of like the blanched tofu, it's also like it's not soft tofu, so it wouldn't I feel like I would use soft tofu more in soups, but for okay. this kind of yeah. medium firm tofu, it's great for like blanching or stir frying. Yeah, that's the like diceable, not like the silken tofu that really is like a custard. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And there's, you know, one thing I learned so much about in this book was um, not just tofu, but all the different like sort of soy and tofu adjacent products. <laughs> you have like many different kinds of tofu. You have a cool tip for freezing tofu, actually literally taking tofu and putting it in the freezer and taking it out. And that changes the texture in a really cool way. Um, 
But there's a story of you, I think you were in Taiwan at the time, Mm -hmm. and you like riding your bike to a, um, the Japanese term is yuba, um, but like tofu skin or soy skin artisan. Tell us about that person and what that was like and and what is they make for people who don't know what this product is. Yeah, so tofu skin is something I didn't know that much about actually either prior to writing this book. But tofu skin is different from tofu in that it's kind of a misnomer. It has really nothing to do with tofu besides for the fact that Mm -hmm. it's made from soy milk. But tofu skin is the film or sheet that forms on top of a pot of soy milk when it is heated. And when I was in Taiwan, I found this tofu skin maker that his shop is one of the few handcrafted tofu skin shops still left in Taiwan. And he was doing everything by hand. So I decided to go and visit him. And you had to go, um, when I called him on the phone, he was like, you, you got to come here at 3am because that's when I'm working. (laughs) And like, if you come here later, I'm going to be done. Like I have pulled all my, um, I think he was trying to pull like 400 tofu skin sheets every day. Um, So he's like, if you come at like 8am, I'm going to be done. So you got to come here early. And there weren't any trains running then. So I'm like, okay, I just, I I guess I have to bike there uh, because I didn't have a car in Taiwan. So I show up there. He has been like going away at it since like midnight and he essentially has these two giant walks, very, very, um, not very deep walks, more shallow, but with a very wide circumference of soy milk just boiling away. And he has these fans, they're electric fans. He said he used to wave bamboo fans over the milk mm-hmm. to get it to cool down. But he had these electric fans that he would turn on. And then while you're watching this milk, um, the soy milk, cooking you'll see a shimmery film start to develop on the surface and then at a certain point he would reach for a very thin bamboo stick and kind of insert it into the soy milk right underneath the skin in the middle in the center and then he would slowly pull it up and then the circle would gradually adhere onto itself as he was pulling it up and form this semicircle, and it would dry as well as he's like pulling this tofu skin up And then he would take it and hang it on the rafters where he had about like, I don't know, like a thousand other tofu skin um, sheets drying up there. And I was just amazed because I had never seen someone doing this and doing it also on such a large scale, but it was still entirely by hand. And the beauty of tofu skin, he showed me, he basically like cracked a piece off. He had me try it and it really is more meat-like, in my opinion, than tofu because it's like this flexible sheet of protein that you can use to wrap um, ingredients. So like if you go to dim sum places, they'll have like tofu skin Mm -hmm. rolls. And so it's very versatile, but a lot of times, um, kind of like the Buddhist families and the businesses that he sells to, they just take these tofu skins, they'll cut them up and then stir fry them or put them in soups because... When you do that, they kind of like melt down, they soften a little bit. And um, you can also use tofu skin to make more of like the mock meat type dishes. So they're like the vegetarian goose recipe in my book uses layers and layers of this tofu skin that you um, kind of um, marinate in like a brine, a broth. And then you add in 
slivered bamboo shoots and carrots and then you wrap it up and fry it and tofu skin becomes so crispy when it's mm-hmm. pan fried or fried yeah <laughs> yeah the the textures like they totally range from like you said they can be like super crisp and crackly and shattering if you fry them or if you braise them they're like silky like noodles it's it's such an incredibly cool ingredient i just think there's such an abundance of plant-based foods in this cuisine like so much more than i knew about previously and it's like a wide variety of plant proteins you have a wide variety of like vegetables and herbs and seasonings and also regional cuisines and cooking styles so for me like just learning about this cuisine made me want to just i was just obsessed with learning more because it feels like endless and i haven't even touched upon like all the regional differences too in cooking vegetables it's really an exciting culinary world to explore and I think I see a lot of parallels now in China as well, where people are more interested in eating plant-based, not out of religious observation, but more because they are concerned about the environment and they care about the same issues that Western eaters care about. And Mm -hmm. they are very excited because they have this cuisine in their own country. That's thousands of years old. It's evolved and it has all this depth and history and all this variety it's super super cool mm-hmm. well thank you so much hannah for for digging into this for teaching me about this food that you know i have been surrounded by my whole life but just didn't really know about yeah absolutely i love talking about this cuisine i go on forever <laughs> yeah what an incredibly deep world and so exciting to dig into it with you thanks so much hannah thank you so much for having me it was a pleasure hannah che is the author of the vegan chinese kitchen recipes and modern stories from a thousand year old tradition You'll find her recipes for braised winter squash with fermented black beans and that super simple, delicious dressed tofu with garlic and basil at SplendidTable.org. Danny Bowen has always been one of my favorite chefs, and his food is as personal as his life story. Born in Korea, he was adopted and raised by a white family in Oklahoma where he loved eating takeout Chinese food. His first taste of Korean cuisine actually came when he moved to San Francisco to become a chef. And somewhere along the way, he managed to win the World Pesto Championship held in Liguria, Italy. For 10 years, his restaurant Mission Chinese Food in New York had a wild menu where you can get explosive chili fried chicken wings, kung pao pastrami, with a super legit margarita pizza on the side. For restaurant fans, Mission Chinese was the home for super inventive, no rules allowed party food. Now Mission since closed, there's actually still one in San Francisco run by his friends, but in his new book, Mission Vegan, Danny writes about how learning to develop a vegan menu alongside his famous thrice cooked bacon has made his food better and easier to make. Hey Danny, it's great to see you. It's so great to see you also. As you know, I have always loved your food so much uh, because it's crazy delicious, but also because it's always so interesting. Like, your food kind of wears your life experiences on its sleeve, and I, I love how you do that. But the thing I want to talk to you about today is something you wrote about in the intro to your new book, right? Which is that you started cooking vegan food really so that all your friends could come to your restaurant. But now you say that that's actually made your cooking better and simpler, which I think is super fascinating. So I actually want to start with one of my favorite dishes of all time, which is your pea greens and pumpkin broth 
I mean, I don't know if you remember this, but we literally had it at our wedding. So <laughs> it's so much. Tell us about this dish. Like, just describe the dish for us and how you make it now. So the pea leaves and pumpkin broth, for all intents and purposes, was one of the first recipes that we served at Longshan, which was mm. where the inception of Mission Chinese Food, the restaurant, yeah, that's where it all started. Um, the dish in and of itself is just a broth that's made with roasted squash or pumpkin. Um, and it's not like pureed. It's kind of mm-hmm. chunky. You kind of like have this roasted piece of squash and you like let it break up in the broth as you're simmering the pea greens and the tofu skin. And then you add this nice dollop of like a, a chili paste on top. <sighs> and some, if you have pumpkin seeds or if you have pumpkin seed oil, you throw those in, in there. If you don't have pumpkin seed oil, you add a little bit of olive oil to add some like fat mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. The, to the broth. But it was one of those things that I've always loved kabocha. I've always loved pumpkin. So uh-huh. um, this dish kind of came about. I really loved this sauce. I love this charred chili paste that I was making. And I wanted to incorporate it into a dish, but I didn't know how to do it. Um, and at the time in Longshan, I was really afraid of any judgment by the, the chef owners of the restaurant because they were Cantonese. So I, my thing was, I would, and they were amazing chefs, and the food they would make for their staff was always incredible. Um, so I just kind of made everything spicy. And that was my way around <laughs> them tasting it too many times and being like, this is wrong or this is right. And also, at that time, my wok cooking wasn't really great. I wasn't really able to like slurry a sauce in the way that... Um, I felt confident enough to do it around them. So I was like, well, I'll just put these pea leaves into a broth. So that's how the whole dish came about. It's pretty simple. Um, you know, in the cookbook specifically, um, there's a lot of opportunities to swap things out. So if you can't find certain ingredients, I, I, when I make this at home, a lot of times I don't have yuba that I've pre-soaked. So I'll just like tear a little bit of firm tofu or silken tofu. Um, mm-hmm. But essentially, at its core, this is just like a, a flavorful broth that's like mounted with some squash and then um you know you have some protein from tofu product of some sort and then um just throw a handful of pea leaves in there and if you don't have pea leaves at home sometimes i'll sub out like arugula uh, or any sort of greens mm. in the fridge that need to be used i love this as like yeah. a you need to use these greens kind of broth so i'll just throw a handful of those in at the end and then this charred chili paste is really what kind of brings the whole dish together um you know, growing up in Oklahoma, one of my favorite things in the world to eat, um, there's this, this Mexican restaurant uh, in Oklahoma City called Chilinos. And they do this mm-hmm. really amazing, like, roasted salsa. They call it, like, a special sauce or something. And um, <laughs> Just they, I think they call sauce. it, like, cool. you'd have to ask for it when you sit down. And it was, like, a roasted, like, hatch chili. When they were in season, they would have hatch chilies and also poblanos oh, cool. and serranos. And they would, like, put it in a mortar and pestle with some tomato. And there was something about that like chili umami. It's just kind of been programmed into my brain from a very young age. And it's something that when I was um, developing this dish, I was like, how can I get that flavor in there? So, um, you know, in the book, I believe we call for like red jalapenos or red Fresno chilies. There's actually two different recipes. There's a red or a green version. Um, mm-hmm. Cause you know, sometimes it's difficult to find red chilies um, that yeah. are fresh. So, um, but really it's about like just a roasted chili paste that you can put in to your liking. Um, but something about like this dish that really, um, it means a lot to me. I think that, um, it's one of these dishes too, that my son, Mino, he's almost nine. He likes this dish a lot. Mm. And I think that's like, 
always the hardest people to impress, in my opinion, are like very young children or like grandparents. <laughs> and so like those are the dishes. It's one of those dishes that kind of like, whenever we made this dish at Longshan, the owner's mother uh, was always in the restaurant, like cleaning down vegetables and stuff like that, just kind of setting at this, uh, we call it table zero. It's a big round like um, communal table. And when I brought it out to her and she was like, oh, that's good. And I was like, okay, then we can put on the menu, you know. So yeah, so both both the, both the grandma and the kid. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what makes the pea greens and pumpkin broth such an amazing dish is its simplicity. Mm-hmm. And I think that for me, there's something so like soul warming about it. Um, you know, I in this book, there's there's always uh, I was adopted. My parents are from Oklahoma, so there's always uh, there's a need for my dad in Oklahoma for him to be like, oh yeah, that makes sense. You know, and, and that's how I kind of quantify a lot of stuff in my brain. Um, I found in this cookbook, I was like, oh, there's a lot of Oklahoma in this book, even though it's like a Korean kid trying to cook Korean food for the first time with a lot of experience cooking Chinese food, you know? <laughs> so, so yeah. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I know that you're, you, you live a very different life than the life you grew up with, uh, with your parents. And I love that you're, you know, they're always a part of you. And you're and you want to think of them when you're writing your book. Yeah, you know, I mean, there's so many. It's it's funny, right? When you're younger, you want to just for me at least, I wanted to just get as far away from where I grew up as I could. Mm-hmm. And now that I'm older, I'm realizing that so much of me and my perspective in life obviously was influenced from the environment I was in. You know, the food I was eating, and some of my happiest moments from my childhood were those moments when I was eating food, no matter how simple or complex it was. And again, like with the cookbook specifically, I wanted to make a book that was for everyone. And, you know, that means if you're vegan, if you're not vegan, and also for my dad in Oklahoma, something that he can pick up and he can not only get the ingredients, he can go buy them at a market. Um, It doesn't require a lot of like chefiness or, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not intimidating. It should be just a fun journey of you like kind of figuring things out in real time with me. Yeah. We'll be back with more from Chef Danny Bowen, author of Mission Vegan, in just a minute. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is The Splendid Table from APM. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is the show for curious cooks and eaters. We're talking with Chef Danny Bowen, author of Mission Vegan, about how learning to cook vegan has made his food better and simpler. Let's get back to it with him. All right. Another one of your signatures is mapo tofu. And just coming to your restaurant over the years, I've seen the description on the menu change at least five times. Right. (laughs) But you've never called it like a new dish or different dishes, just continually evolved. And I remember like maybe the last version I had was, you know, it's mapo tofu. So it's like, you know, this like really tender, soft tofu in this red chili bean sauce. And you had like bits of like dry aged beef. Mm-hmm. and dry aged beef fat mm-hmm. and it was super delicious and it took I think you said three days to make mm-hmm. but now you say the best version of it of all is the vegan version that takes one hour so let's start with how did you come to mapo tofu and what was the long version like so the mapo tofu in and of itself was this revelation to me I wanted to give up cooking I had cooked in fine dining mm-hmm. for a very long time but when I tasted this version of this dish that I had many times, and for those of you that don't know, if you're unfamiliar with mapo tofu, there's something that clicked in my head when I had it for the first time because it's essentially tofu cubes that are in like an emulsified into like a meat sauce. So 
I'd grown up eating my fair share in Oklahoma City of hamburger helper mm-hmm. or like pasta bolognese. You know, my favorite restaurant to go to was Olive Garden growing up. So I ate a lot of penne or pasta and meat sauce. So when mm-hmm. I first had this, although there was a lot of familiarity to this like meat sauce and like um, instead in the place of pasta, there were these cubes of tofu, which had this like a really nice texture. It was very, it wasn't al dente and chewy like pasta. It was more like silky. Um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it had that kind of like muted flavor, that subtle flavor that really comp- let allowed, allowed the really strong flavor of the sauce to come through, but kind of broke it up a little bit. Um, so the long version of this dish, before Mission Chinese Food started at Longshan, my partner, Anthony Mint, um, he started a pop-up inside of a Chinese restaurant in the Mission and they're, you know, mid-2000s, and it was called Mission Street Food. And for all intents and purposes, that was like the first pop-up, food pop-up inside of another restaurant in the history yeah. of pop-ups, which is really hard to wrap <laughs> your head around. And I oftentimes think <laughs> it I'm was just, like the inception I'm like, of restaurants. I'm like, that's not true. Like, I, that can't be true. But it was. And so what happened was each week they would invite in a group of, like they would rotate out like a new guest chef. And it would be a sous chef from another restaurant. It's like a model that we've seen a million times at this point. But back then, it was very new. And especially mm-hmm, in San yeah. Francisco, like it gave like a young aspiring chef or someone that uh, was a chef de cuisine at a restaurant or someone that was a chef at their own restaurant but wanted to cook different food an opportunity to do something um, kind of on their own terms. And so the menus at these dinners would be would happen once or twice a week. And there would just be like the guest chef would bring in five dishes. And then Anthony and his team would do a couple of dishes to kind of supplement that. So the whole menu, maybe like eight to 10 dishes and everything was like very Mm -hmm. affordable and they would always donate a portion of the proceeds to the San Francisco food bank. Um, They were always themed, whether like uh, it was a chef being like, I'm doing food of my, you know, growing up food. Like there were Midwest nights. There were uh, really amazing nights where certain chefs made like Salvadorian food and they brought one, one person brought in their mother and they made these amazing pupusas. It was an incredible yeah, night. Cool. But what happened over time was that we started to, he had started to cycle through uh, after a year. Or so like all the chefs and sous chefs and CDCs in San Francisco had come and like worked and done a night. Yeah. <laughs> and at one point we were having a hard time getting guest chefs in. So we were like, well, why don't we do like Chinese food night in the Chinese restaurant? Yeah. That would be fun. <laughs> and Anthony's he's Chinese. And like, he was like, yeah, we're going to do Chinese food. And, um, my, one of my best friends, uh, Brandon Jew in San Francisco, he was the reason that I had Sichuan Mapo Tofu for the first time. And yeah. uh, we went to this restaurant called Spices 2 Sichuan Trends. Um, and it was like That's a Taiwanese... Yeah, it was T-R-E-N-Z is the name. And like, it was really amazing. It was a Taiwanese Sichuan restaurant. And so we would go there all the time. And I'd never had this like mouth-numbing, tingling like the mala, like mapo tofu. I've mm-hmm. always, yeah. I always had like, I always loved mapo tofu. It was one of my favorite dishes, but I'd only have like the one sometimes was just like in a brown sauce with peas. Um, so it was like this light bulb went off because I had been cooking in these restaurants, whether it was like regional Italian food or Japanese restaurants, a lot of Japanese restaurants, uh, a lot of Cal Italian or farm to table restaurants. And, you know, a lot of the food we were making in these restaurants was very delicious, but nothing was like challenging in a way. It wouldn't challenge or it wouldn't, nothing was really spicy. Uh, mm-hmm. So this for me, when I had this dish, it was just amazing. It was like, it was like hearing a different type of music for the first time. And mm. to me, I was, I was hooked on it. And it, a lot of it came from this sauce and a lot of Sichuan peppercorn in the sauce and the chili sauce, which is made with doubanjang, which is a fermented 
broad bean and chili sauce. Um, it, it had this flavor of like spicy and numbing, spicy and tingling, you know, and made mm-hmm, you kind of mm-hmm. salivate in a really amazing, cool way. It was like almost like you're licking a battery. Um, in the most but pleasant, in a delicious battery. An addictive <laughs> way, yeah. So, anyhow, uh, it was guest chef night, our night, the people that worked at Longshan, and we were doing a Chinese food night. And so I was like, I'm, I'm going to do Mapo Tofu, but I, we had no idea how to make it, you know? And <laughs> we had absolutely no idea. And this was before, like, YouTube, you couldn't just go on YouTube and look up a, uh, a recipe. And at that time, we had some recipes that we could reference because Brandon had like dropped off this box of Chinese cookbooks with me. And so I would pour through them, but we couldn't really nail the flavor that we were tasting at Spices too. Mm-hmm. And so we'd ask them and they were like, actually one of the um, employees there was like, oh, we use this like Sichuan peppercorn oil. Because at the time it was really difficult in San Francisco to get the correct Sichuan peppercorn to make the dish like really numbing. Um, and they're like, we use this oil. And so um, that's kind of how it started. And the first night at Longshan, when we did it, we, I think there were like 40 plus ingredients in the recipe. And we built it more like a bolognese. I was like, oh, because I'd just come from working in an Italian restaurant. I was like, oh, I'll just make it like a bolognese because I have no idea how to make this. There was a lot of just like <laughs> wide eyed, um, kind of frightened optimism. And I made it with way too many ingredients. It took way too long. And over yeah. the years, and that I think is the recipe that was in the Mission Chinese Food Cookbook, and it takes a couple of days. And then, you know, over the years, it just got to be really difficult and it was very inconsistent depending on who made it because there's so many variables and points at the recipe where it can go wrong, whether it's like the skill of the person making it in the restaurant or the ingredients you're getting, uh, the spices. There were like way too many spices, in my opinion, in the beginning. (laughs) So we kind of narrowed it down. And I think the last version you had, when when we had a restaurant in East Broadway in Manhattan, I was like, wait, I want really big flavor, but I want to take away a lot of the ingredients. And over the years, I kind of scaled back. And I do believe that the best version to date, the one that I'm most happy with, is the, is the mushroom version that uses the dried shiitakes. And um, I like it with meat. I like it without meat. I actually like the mushroom version a lot better. And we've tried it with fresh mushrooms. We do it with that sometimes, depending on what we can get. But I really like the dried mushroom version just because... Of shelf stability. I always have a few extra shiitake mushrooms. When you buy them, um, I usually buy like a bag and there's a lot. And so yeah. they're always in the, this is like a, I love this dish because it's really something that can come together. Um, with it, all you have to do is buy some tofu, really. You, the, the chili bean sauce or the domanjang stays good forever. It's always in my fridge. Um, the dry shiitake mushrooms, there's like, they're just in the pantry. They're dry. So yeah. I really love the, the I really love the approachability of this dish. I mean, you, you need to shop and buy some ingredients, but it's far less than in the original Mapo Tofu recipe, and I think it's the best. Um, it just, it's, it's so much easier to execute in a restaurant setting or at home. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So walk us through real quick how you make it now. Um, so what I do is I first, I soak the mushrooms, and I, you know, I do a warm soak on them. So I just soak them for like 20 minutes. Uh, and boiling mm-hmm. water, just pour it over the top and let them set. It's almost like you're making a tea, right? Um, yeah. And then I think it's really important, no matter what type of tofu you get, I think it's really important to boil it in salted water first. It kind of helps set the protein a little bit more, and it helps it mm-hmm. not explode whenever you add it to the sauce. So I kind of like when we yeah. would train someone on this at the restaurant, we'd tell them, it's kind of like you're cooking your pasta for your sauce. If you're making penne or anything else, you'd want to boil the pasta first. So we boil yeah. the tofu for a moment. And then we, I make like a cornstarch slurry. So just a little bit of cornstarch and water. And I set that aside. And 
if it separates, you just want to whisk it back together. Um, mm-hmm. And then um, I basically drain the mushrooms and I reserve the liquid. Take off the, we just clean the um, mushrooms really quickly with scissors. I find those are the easiest way to like snip off the base, the stem of the mushroom, of a dried mushroom, mm-hmm. um, if you have kitchen shears or scissors. And then I just chop the mushrooms up. Um, if you have a food processor, you can throw them in there, but I just chop them up with a chef's knife. Uh, into like quarter inch pieces, and then what I do is I kind of look at this as almost like you know it's almost like you're making a you're making a pan sauce basically. Um, mm-hmm. So you basically um, add the mushrooms to some really hot oil and cook them until they start to brown a little bit, and then I add tomato paste. Tomato paste adds a lot of depth of flavor. Um, it adds a nice color, and also mm-hmm. um, it kind of helps add a viscosity to the sauce as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Stir that up for a few moments. Add the dobanjang, which is the chili bean sauce. Um, and you just buy it in jars, yeah. Yeah. And then um, garlic, ginger, and black bean sauce, which there's a recipe for in the book. And then uh, cook that for a minute too. Then I add um, some gochugaru, some Korean chili flakes. I find those are okay. not too over the top spicy. Uh, they have a really nice flavor and they give you a really beautiful color to the dish. And then yeah, um, super red, and then I, super, super and then I add back the um, reserved mushroom soaking liquid, and then um, let that come to a boil, simmer it for a few moments. Add the Szechuan peppercorn oil and Szechuan peppercorn powder, and then um, thicken it with a cornstarch slurry, and then at, let that come to a boil. And then after that's um, all set and like thick, it's almost like a gravy. Then you add your tofu mm-hmm. to that, and then you like fold it through. So it really you want the sauce to cling to the outside of the tofu cubes. Um, and coat them really nicely. Um, you don't want them to yeah. be separate at all. And then um, just put it in a bowl and sprinkle some Szechuan peppercorn powder on top. Um, in the cookbook, I think oh, there's God. some beautiful yellow yeah. chives in there, but you can use scallions or green onions. Or Oftentimes, I, if I don't have it, I just put Szechuan pepper powder on top and serve it with a bowl of warm rice. Um, oh, that's so good. It's, it's like spicy and tingly and numbing and deep. And it's not like... First, you roast a dry-aged prime rib. No, no, that, no. It's, it's, <laughs> it's not chefy. It's also really great over instant noodles, too. Like, that's a big thing. And there's a book, a recipe in the book for, like, a mapo ramen. Um, you know, it's just, think of it as, like, a, it's just a sauce, you know? And again, like, I think that when I was making this book, um, I, I've kind of come to this conclusion that all you really need is a great sauce, whether it's, like, a mapo tofu or, like, even, like, a small condiment, like the charred chili paste, which we spoke about earlier, and the pumpkin mm-hmm. and the pea leaf and pumpkin broth. It's really about the sauce, you know? Um, so, like, um, yeah, this is that, a really... That, like, hit of flavor. I mean, it's just... And because I, I, you know, tofu in and of itself, it's got its own flavor profile, but it's very... Um, I wouldn't it's say... Subtle. It's subtle. And then, you know, when you're eating it with this dish, if you were to taste this dish by itself without rice, um, it's pretty in your face. It's very flavorful, Um but there's something about eating it with rice, and I, it's just a perfect. To me, this is one of the most perfect foods that you can ever eat. Yeah, it's so good, and you're totally right. It's like I mean, you know, it, it, it's meant to be eaten with rice, yeah. right? It's, yeah. it's it's meant to be stretched with the rice. It's meant to complement the rice, and right. it's just oh god, it's so good. Yeah, it's a great sauce. I mean, it's like you know when you're eating curry or something, you're wanting to eat that typically with like some sort of starch, whether it's bread or rice or grain, and this too, you know, I've. I've not had rice, and I've had to eat this with a piece of sourdough bread, mapo tofu, and it was actually really great. Uh, Chad at Tartine Bakery in San Francisco, we always talk about how we should do a, a, a dinner together one night and just serve a loaf of bread and a bowl of mapo tofu and see what happens. <laughs> well, right on, Danny. Well, congratulations on the book. 
It has been a pleasure. I'll talk to you later. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, Francis. Danny Bowen is the author of Mission Vegan, wildly delicious food for everyone. He left us with a recipe for Mapo Tofu, and you can find it at SplendidTable.org. So, you know, at this point, we know that there is so much deliciousness to be had without animal products, but let me take you back for a moment to the 80s, in the bland old days, as I like to refer to them for my mom, who, you know, as we talked about earlier, was a Taoist vegetarian. And in those times, she did have a pretty miserable diet at home. She didn't really know how to cook for herself yet, and the no onions and garlic thing was tough. I remember once we straight up got kicked out of a restaurant because the chef refused to cook for her. Anyway, one day, my mom took me to her temple down in Chinatown. And after the prayers were over, they invited us to stay for lunch. And I'm like, okay, here we go. Time for veggie dogs out of a can, which was literally what my mom ate at home. And then the lunch comes out. It was cooked by the nuns, and it was incredible. There were fried rice noodles with mushrooms and sweet carrots. There were all these dishes, and there was one I totally remember. I'll never forget it. It was layers of tofu skin that had been folded and stacked, so they were chewy and slippery and braised in a sauce with five spice. And they called it vegetarian chicken. I've been obsessed with it ever since. Now... Like, this was way before there was Impossible Meat or Beyond Burgers. And I've heard people, like, scoff and say, well, if you're vegetarian or if you're vegan, why do you want to eat fake meat? Which, okay, is the dumbest kind of gotcha. But it was actually through Hannah Che, who we talked to earlier, that I realized something. She reminded me that so many dishes in Chinese cuisine aren't just for taste or nutrition. They have symbolic meanings. Like, I was always taught to eat shrimp in the new year, to have laughter through the year. Famously, you know, Chinese people eat dumplings in the new year for good luck and money. And so in the culture, food is never just food. And so one of the reasons why there's such a deep plant-based cuisine is because hundreds of generations of temple cooks were developing dishes that would live up to the symbolic value of the meat dishes. It's incredible, right? Like, human creativity is so amazing. And oh, by the way, I finally have a recipe for the vegetarian chicken. Hannah wrote it. That's it for our show this week. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next week. ABM Studios are run by Chandra Kavadi, Alex Schaffert, and Joanne Griffith. Beth Perlman's our executive producer. And The Splendid Table was created by Sally Swift and Lynn Rosetto Casper. It's made every week by technical producer Jennifer Lubke, Producer Erica Romero, digital producer James Napoli, and managing producer Sally Swift. I'm Francis Lamb, and this is APM Studios. Mm-hmm.